This episode is sponsored by SIBO Technologies, creator of SIBO Enterprise, a proven cloud-based platform that provides visibility to ESG, carbon, and scope three initiatives across a grower network. For more information, please visit SIBOTechnologies.com. From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the state of green business, a peek into our 15th annual report, plus what corporate fleet managers want out of EVs, bringing transparency to the palm oil supply chain, and a Minnesota farmer sows his wild oats. It's Grain Expectations, this week on 350. It's January 28th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, no doubt under a few covers and blankets, it's uh, the warming up Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. So I have to ask you, do yes. you like Charles Dickens? Do I like Charles Dickens? Uh, yeah, sure. you made a reference in the, in the, uh, in the little, uh, little the, punny there. The yep. grain yep. expectations. Oh, yes, yes. Well, yes, um, yes. It, uh, it, it was the worst of puns and the best of puns, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Miss Havisham, <laughs> great character. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm feeling a little loopy today, but I actually think you should be feeling more loopy. You pulled off this amazing report uh, this week. I mean, of course, many people wrote it, but uh, you coordinated it. But how are you feeling about the 15th annual State of Green Business Report? Well, I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, first of all, it's always good feeling when it's done and out. And, yeah. and we had this uh, really, I think, terrific uh, webcast uh, with uh, five of our analysts plus uh, um, Rich Madison from S&P Global. And we'll play some excerpts that you've queued up for us later on in mm -hmm. this webcast. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, as I said, 15th annual. And um, we mixed it up a little bit this year, as you know. Uh, in the past, for the past, I don't know, half dozen or more years, it's, there's been two parts to this, the, uh, the main, the 10 trends that we, we uh, uh, look at uh, for the year ahead in sustainable business, and then followed by the back half of the report is the State of Green Business Index produced with uh, S&P Global. It's a, a bunch of data points on uh, and indicators and trend lines on how business is doing. So we cleaved off that uh, index this year, and we're going to publish that as part of a bigger report in the spring, an, an ESG or Greenfin report. We're still working out the name of it exactly. Uh, it's going to come out in May. But this time we really focused on the trends. And as you'll queue up a little bit later, also brought in some, uh, some state of net zero from Rich Madison and some information about uh, jobs and career trends from LinkedIn. And so, yeah, it was great. And, and it is absolutely a team effort. We had 10 of us, including you, uh, wrote the, the 10 mm -hmm. trends. And um, we had a brand new design, thanks to our uh, the great talent of, of Julia Van on our team. And um, uh, there's some cool little videos of each of us uh, talking about our trends. So, yeah, it all came together. If you haven't downloaded it, um, check it out. It's free, of course, as it always is. And uh, I'm pretty pretty pleased with it. 
Yeah, I'm actually really enjoying the videos. They're fun. <laughs> They're fun to watch and they help get a, get a sense of, of the, the different trends very quickly. And then you can dive more deeply into the, the text of the report. Um, we'll be also highlighting those on the website over time. So keep keep an eye there as well. And just to give the shameless plug, the State of Green Business report is always a foundational precursor, if you will, to uh, the Green, our green Business event uh, coming up in just... Uh, less than three weeks now um, in, in, in Scottsdale. And uh, it's 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 going to be epic. Aside from just coming together, everybody, for the first time in two years, um, it's clear. I mean, I'll just say that, you know, as, as you know, we're our expectations, the, the forecasts of, enroll, of, of sponsorship and registration have just been blown away by the re- response. We always have high expectations, but the, the audience has really stepped up. People want to be together. People will be coming to Scottsdale, you know, I think they understand that we're going to have a run a safe event um, in, in all the ways that's important these days. So, yeah, uh, that's off a part and parcel of what happens this time of year at State of Green Business. We run more of the stories uh, over the course of, of 10 weeks on the site, but it, it, it all leads up to the Green Biz event coming up in three weeks. But let's not look too far ahead. In fact, let's look back at the Week in Review. And as we get into this, I'm going to start with a piece you did this week, Heather, on what corporate fleet managers want out of electric vehicles. I mean, what do they want? <laughs> well, so those for those of you who are, have not been keeping score, I've been uh, helping manage our mobility weekly while our analyst has been on uh, maternity leave. And uh, this was a piece that came, came to me from the folks at Ceres. They coordinate a group called the Corporate Electric Vehicle Alliance, CEBA, for those of you who love acronyms. And this is a report that they published last week, a survey, essentially, of their members um, talking about what they want to buy as far as electric vehicles. And it covers everything from sedans up to semi-tractor-trailer kinds of trucks. Um, And, you know, there were a number of things that really popped out at me. Uh, First of all, actually, I should say who these people are. They're they're pretty big companies. It's uh, Folks like Amazon, Best Buy, DHL, Hertz. Collectively, they represent uh, 1.3 million, quote, on-road vehicles, end quote, in the United States as far as their fleets. And they also collectively have plans to buy somewhere in the neighborhood at least 330,000 EVs over the next five years. So that's just context. I think some of the things that really popped out at me from the survey, and, and I would highly recommend anyone who's involved with this to get deep because it, it, it goes way deeper than I was able to go in this story. Um, but the first thing that I think anyone out there who's making these, these vehicles should keep in mind is that 96% of the respondents said they are willing to switch suppliers if they can't get some of the features that these folks want. So if, if, uh, if you're not delivering on the battery uh, capacity or the, the, you know, the charging infrastructure or the like, you could lose out to other manufacturers. So one of the things that, that I think was particularly interesting to me was there was a really strong preference for battery electric. The only place that that was an exception was in utility service trucks. So like the ones that the telecoms companies drive around to go fix the, the lines or whatever, the bucket trucks, um, that the hybrid, plug-in hybrids were preferred there. 
um, there was uh, the, the biggest sort of the, the most desired, if you will, vehicle was the cargo van. I think that's not all that surprising given how much attention the delivery companies are, are putting on this category. Um, and I, the other thing that was kind of interesting to me is just the tractor trailers. Um, within the next five years, 6,000 of these massive trucks are that they this, this group hopes to buy between now and like 2026. Things like um, they want at least 200 to 300 miles per charge. So it's like, uh, you know, it's pretty, like I said, pretty, pretty good data that we also this week, uh, you know, I just want to pl plug another story. It's kind of related. We published our latest look at some of the companies that are really hoping to make their mark in this category, especially the EV uh, vans and trucks. Uh, we've been doing that list for a few years and we have the latest one up this week as well. Yeah, and I don't know whether you participated in the call that, that took place on Tuesday this week, Heather, for our GreenBiz Executive Network. Um, this was about uh, 50 or 60 companies that's a part of this membership group that we have uh, talking specifically about uh, EV fleets. Uh, and it mm -hmm. was fascinating. Um, it was a Chatham House, so we can't tell talk about the specific companies that were there, but just one of the things that I didn't fully appreciate, well, one is just the complexity of the decision-making process in, yeah. in, in buying these vehicles, but also the fact that companies, uh, in, in some of these cases, particularly with the larger trucks, the tractor trailers, as you call them, um, these are 20-year assets. And, yeah, exactly. so, and so when you think about a company making uh, net zero commitments and with 2030 or 2040 uh, kinds of, of goals or, or major milestones, uh, you know, the trucks and other vehicles that are being bought today are going to be around, you know, in 2040, uh, theoretically. And so they're making these long-term decisions uh, uh, in the short term about things that are going to have implications <laughs> and commitments they've made. So, yeah, the complexity of this is, yeah. is fascinating. And, and um, you know, and, and we're talking about, in one particular case, um, a large uh, delivery company that has over 120,000 of these vehicles on the road. Um so this is not just a you know a small uh, small little shop here. These are major decisions, and the, and and these companies and there's multiple companies that qualify in that category. Uh, mm -hmm. You probably everyone probably knows who they are. Um, you know they are the market makers of these vehicles. They're the ones that are going to be making, particularly of the of, of trucks and medium duty and heavy duty trucks. They're the ones that are yeah. going to be basically. Uh, uh, setting the standards in effect by saying what they want to your point that they, they have yeah. very specific needs. And, and, you know, the other thing, and I'm sure this came up on that call, I would, did not have the pleasure of being on that call this week, but the whole EV charging network dilemma. Um, if, you, if you think about it, like what made long haul trucking work in the United States, the infrastructure, the public investment in that infrastructure. So it's so important to have that public infrastructure of charging. Um, you know, these companies are, yes, they're going to buy things for their depot. And maybe if it's an SUV or a cargo van, maybe their employees might have these things at home, but really they also need them on the road and they need the, the public investment and the availability of those to be much higher than it is. And that's, that's a dilemma, of course, that we've talked about a lot um, and that the Biden administration is, talking about as well and, and, and making some investments there. So hopefully, fingers crossed, hopefully that that will start pushing forward as well. Yeah. And one of the things uh, some of these big trucks 
will be hauling is palm oil. <laughs> I you saw see what, what I you did, did there? there, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the topic of a story that associate editor Jesse Klein uh, wrote this week on bringing transparency to the palm oil supply chain. Palm oil, I think most people know, is an ingredient that's that's been problematic because it, of the deforestation that takes place uh, to plant uh, the, the palm plantations, really. Uh, and um, although it, I was surprised to say it's only re- responsible for 1% of deforestation uh, compared to you know beef and soy production, which are, uh, drive more than two-thirds of habitat loss, at least in Brazil. Um, and and so, it, but it still is a problem, and, and it's been the responsible palm oil, uh, as it's called, has been a growing issue, and and finding ways to source it sustainably has been challenging, and particularly at the scale of which it's used, because it's used in so many different kinds of products, from you know personal care products to foods, um, and, uh, and and a number of things. Someone calls that the workhorse ingredient. So anyway, I like this. It was specific to uh, a project that uh, BSR, uh, the mission is called the Action for Sustainable Derivatives um, Collaborative. And BSR has been doing these collaboratives for 25 years where they bring together a bunch of companies that are all dealing with the same problem. Maybe their competitors even, or they may also bring in some of their value chain partners or suppliers or indoor customers. Uh, to, to, you know, how do we solve together problems that none of us are big enough to solve alone? And so I'm a big fan of BSR's initiatives, and I hope they can uh, bring some uh, some sense and, and solutions to the palm oil ch- challenge. Yeah, and I, I um, this one's, I think, was it third year in operation? And so the, the update here is um, just some of the, the data and transparency that they've been able to uncover. Um they're, they're moving forward. I, I, you know, and I'm also, you mentioned competitors and and people, it it is a wide range of companies. Like you don't normally think about, you know, think palm oil. I think a lot of people think food, but it's a makeup. It's in soap. It's in everything. It's like, to your point, it's the workhorse ingredient. Um, and I, I love that, that they're doing this. It's, this is hard work, this mapping and, and, data gathering, um, you know, it, 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 there's one example of one of the companies, um, they buy three over 300 palm based raw materials from over 100 suppliers. I mean, that's just incredible. Like if you try to do that yourself, I mean, I just think the, the ability to scale when you're collaborating like this, um, is, is much greater. And uh, so they have a, uh, uh, an index out, um, that they use and, it's really helping um, drive more transparency through this supply chain. So love it. Um, hopefully they're successful um, and continue to be successful. One thought, thing I also thought was interesting is, you know, they can they can provide this data, but they can't like say buy from these folks, uh, you know, or buy but don't buy from these folks because you get into antitrust issues. Um, but at least if that information, if the information is out there, the suppliers can make the brands can make their decisions about who to buy from. So anyway, yeah. I love it. Great. Well, uh, let's turn to the third story I want to talk about uh, this week from uh, Grant Harrison, our green finance and ESG analyst uh, who writes the uh, Greenfin Weekly newsletter. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, I think, building on the uh, war for ESG talent, the pieces that, that I wrote uh, last year, uh, and, and really looking at, at, at what's going on out there as 
companies, not just financial institutions and finance and investment companies, but companies uh, of all sorts are looking to hire people with ESG knowledge and experience. Um, uh, you know what they're looking for, and and it, and it turns out that this uh, Generation Z and and uh, and millennials, you know, not news in and of itself, but they really want transparency and honesty. They don't believe companies so much anymore. The the uh, the view of the of capitalism and the private sector continues to drop, even among uh, Republican uh, young Republicans. Their their highly uh, historically positive view of capitalism has dropped fifteen percentage points in the last three years, according to Grant. So um, it's just a really interesting look at uh, at what companies need to do to attract talent. And now that we have you know this great resignation and and going on, people are jumping ship left and right, looking for different opportunities, better opportunities, or you know just maybe no opportunities. But as to the extent they're looking at new opportunities, uh, you know this is a really important piece to understand. How do you attract and retain? Uh, this generation. It's not the way it used to be. Yeah, there is, you know, you know, it's ironic. And I, he doesn't mention this in this story, but the, the Edelman um, trust barometer, right? Businesses are, you know, they're just definitely more distrust about them. However, ironically, they're actually the, you know, businesses and leaders, CEOs are actually the most trusted institution, <laughs> believe it or not, like way more than government and other, and other sources as well. Um, so like, so that's the good news in this. I think one of my big takeaways, especially as since I'm trying to hire right now <laughs> myself, um, is to be open to the sort of conversations that candidates might want to have have about this. To be completely transparent about, um, you know, what's working and what's not working, even if it's uncomfortable. And I, you know, I think that's hard for companies to do, especially larger companies, which have all of these specific hiring policies, and you can say this, and you can't say that. And, but I think that that needs to change. Um, the, the people that are hiring are going to need to be ready to be interviewed themselves. Um, and I think being candid about what's not working is so important. Uh, I think people respect, respect that. And, um, especially for this, this, this generation, by the way, I don't think it's just, I mean, it's absolutely being driven by the, the rising stars and the rising leaders and the, the folks that, you know, so the next generation, if you will. But I, I think this is kind of an ageless, timeless thing now at this point. I mean, I think many people have this notion of they want to work for people that are uh, an employer that, that does have this, this sort of authenticity and transparency and, um, you know, purpose, if you will. So I think it's just a, a deeper expression of what's been, what we've been moving towards for the last few years. Um, and I, I really, I'm glad he tackled it. Yeah. And, and I do think that we're in this time uh, for all of us, but I do think it, it really focuses on the younger generations where there's a, a desire uh, hunger, perhaps, to have what the rest of us might call uncomfortable conversations, and what they might just call conversations. Uh, you know, some mm -hmm. of these topics. Uh, there's lots of uncom com uncomfortable conversations in our world to be had these days. Um, certainly, you know, going back to uh, post George Floyd and some of the 
you know, white privilege and, and racial justice. Those are a lot of uncomfortable conversations, which, of course, continue uh, very much these days. But also just looking at um, pushback on sustainability uh, that comes from both sides, from the from the, the right wing conservatives saying, you know, this is this is just uh, unnecessary, a distraction. It's not really helping. Uh, and uh, and and some of these problems aren't or will be solved by markets. To the other side, it just says uh, you know companies just aren't doing uh, either tinker tinkering at the margins here for all mm-hmm. the activity. It's really not going to cut it here. And so uh, I think some honest conversations about that. Uh, and if you're in the job market right now and you and you understand how much your future, your life, uh, everything you're planning in your life is could be affected by the climate crisis. Uh, and you want to pick an employer. I mean, these are really important conversations. And I think part of what the point that Grant was making here is that companies need to be ready, willing, and able not just to have those conversations, but to embrace those conversations and say, you know, we are all about that. And and to do it, and, and I know this word is way, way overused, <laughs> authentically. Yeah. Uh, you know, whatever yeah. that means. But But what it mm-hmm. means is is I think for me at least is embracing that that discomfort and just saying you know these are tough issues here and we're not always getting it right and we're tra- challenging some kinds of things we need your help and uh, and we want you to come in and speak truth um, I don't know how many companies say those things it's easy for me to say uh, in on this podcast harder for companies in the real world the recruiters to to mouth those words they probably would get in trouble in some companies for saying that. But the point is still there that it's needed. This week, GreenBiz published its 15th annual State of Green Business Report, highlighting 10 trends our analysts and editors expect to shape the year ahead. This year's edition also included commentary on the state of the net zero movement and on the state of green jobs and skills contributed by the chief economist of LinkedIn. Some of the subject matter experts featured in the report brought their analysis to life in a webcast this week. After listening in, I selected five highlights to share with our podcast listeners. First up is perspective on why companies need to become more aggressive about the principle of net zero to live in their short-term commitments, not just in long-term ambitions for 2050. Here's Richard Madison, president of S&P Global Sustainable One. Well, I think, you know, when, when we think about net zero, it's, it's kind of some zero target for emissions by around 2050 normally. And on the face of it, in terms of target setting, we're doing pretty well. So, you know, you've really got uh, over 5,000 companies signed up to the official Race to Zero UN organized body, um, and many investors as well that are signed up under the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, over $130 trillion of assets under management. So on the face of it, that's pretty good. When we dug into the details a little more, what we found was actually that in terms of companies, uh, we looked at the uh, data from the CDP, uh, Carbon Disclosure Project, as was, and also our own data um, in terms of companies responding to the S&P Global Corporate Sustainability Assessment. And actually, we found that only a quarter of the companies responding to the surveys had net zero. So really around the world's largest 2,000 companies, only a quarter really had net zero uh, targets. So a little more to go. 
of the 30 largest companies in the most important sectors from an emissions perspective, though, most of the 30 largest companies have actually signed up uh, to a net zero target. So in terms of target setting, um, then, you know, in long term ambition, uh, that is, you know, set with more progress to make um, a challenge is is really where we are today relative to the near future. So so really, we have 2050 targets uh, for net zero. And it, I mean, if I give you the equivalent in, in a financial analysis perspective, um, we have 2050 targets for net zero, but very few uh, targets for 2025 that we can really analyze in a lot of detail. And so what that is the equivalent of is, is essentially companies reporting on you know, 2050 revenue targets uh, with no information about you know, what they're going to do in the near term. That's really unusual for markets. It's a very unusual situation for markets to be able to analyze and interpret because normally we're a little more short-sighted. Uh, we don't have a long-term perspective in financial markets. Uh, we have a much more near-term perspective. But in terms of the near-term perspective, we expect a lot more detail. So there's a big information gap. We have an ambition that is raised and, and the level that is uh, quite high, um, but we have a near-term uh, set of information that is lacking. And I think that actually reflects um, actually the type of detailed and, and fairly complex planning that companies are going to have to go through to really understand what trajectory they want to be on, what are the strategic options for their businesses, and really, uh, you know, what are the near-term commitments, therefore, the companies are actually able and willing to sign up to uh, uh, juxtapositioned against those longer-term targets? So um, we plotted the destination in the GPS, but we really can't see the route map at the moment. Mm. One force that's sure to impact the net zero movement is coming in the form of mandatory regulations for reporting on environmental, social, and governance issues. In this next segment, GreenBiz Green Finance and ESG analyst Grant Harrison addresses the question, what will these regulations solve for? The pithy answer to your question is greenwash. This is a filter for greenwash, uh, maybe a bit of green wishing in there too. But I want to start with just the absolutely massive scale of ESG investing. Uh, if you work in sustainable finance, if you just have a brokerage account or a retirement account, or maybe just read the news, you're likely still hearing the echoes of this space's explosion over this past uh, year and change. Uh, a key figure, $35 trillion uh, by the middle of last year was invested in some form of ESG strategy. For context, global GDP in 2021 was $85 trillion, So that is a truly jaw-dropping shift in capital allocation toward enterprises that are at least ostensibly helping to usher in a sustainable real economy here on Earth. Uh, regulations are taking different shape across geographies and, and markets, but I think the first to home in on is Europe, uh, as it's an area that tends to lead on policy that fosters uh, a clean economy. Try to avoid acronyms here. It's impossible when talking about ESG regulations. So uh, EU has the SFDR, Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, came into effect March of last year in the uh, vein of trying to prevent the space where greenwash is even possible. It aims to help investors by providing transparency on environmental and social characteristics embedded in financial products, um, those that invest in sustainable investments or those that actually have a direct, discrete uh, kind of sustainable objective. Uh, it does so, um, there's no quiz at the end of this, so you don't need to take too hard of notes here, but it, it does this by categorizing in Article 6, 8, and 9 within the SFDR. Uh, Article 6 being light green, colloquially referred to, Article 9 being dark green. Um, Article 6 basically means that you're 
incorporating ESG considerations into the investment decision-making process, or conversely have to explain why sustainability risk is not relevant. Article eight um, are strategies that promote social or environmental characteristics and maybe invest in sustainable investments, but don't have that um, sustainable investing as the core objective. And lastly, article nine is just that. It is a strategy with a clear mandate to either you know think carbon reduction or gender diversity, something that is specifically under that ESG uh, umbrella and has to relate to one of the EU's taxonomy for sustainable activities criteria, and I assume do no significant harm to others. Um, and then quickly taking us across the pond to the United States, a quote from Churchill's ringing in my head that hopefully doesn't apply here, which is that you can trust the Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Um, ESG regulations in the US are definitely a work in progress. Uh, same time that SFDR came out last year, the then acting chair of the SEC, Alison Heron Lee, uh, essentially set the stage for the next chapter here in sustainable finance, and I paraphrase, she said, human capital, human rights, climate change, these issues are fundamental to our markets. We understand these issues are key to investors and therefore key to our mission. And I can't be certain, but I imagine Milton Friedman then did a quick turn in his grave. Uh, this is not a small shift in how a financial regulatory body for the world's largest economy considers ESG in its core mission. Uh, so I would say auspicious signs. And just to offer a, a last Quote, on the other side of the spectrum here, uh, this country is polarized on nearly every subject and ESG regulations are not an exception. Uh, so last quote I'd like to share, I appreciate it more for its poeticism than for its substance or sentiment, but SEC Commissioner Hester Pierce bitingly framed ESG advocacy, and I'll go on a limb and assume she does not read the State of Business report, that ESG advocacy is shunning, wrapped in moral rhetoric, preached with cold-hearted, self-righteous oblivion to the consequences. Oof. Suffice to say, we are not wow. all on the same page here. The latest trend in corporate procurement of renewable energy is the push to sign deals that ensure the delivery of clean power on a 24 by 7 basis, in other words, around the clock. The phrase that Google and the Biden administration used to describe this concept is 24 by 7 carbon-free energy. Microsoft calls it 100-100-0, that is 100% electricity, 100% of the time, to be matched by zero carbon energy. And IBM simply calls this concept true zero. In the next highlight from our webcast, Greenbiz senior energy analyst, Sarah Golden, deciphers the technologies necessary to help achieve this goal. Yeah, I really liked the analogy that Richard used at the top of the idea that right now we have a destination in the GPS, but don't know how to get there. And I think that's a promising sign when it comes to this initiative, because companies are setting these ambitious goals and they're just trusting that they'll be able to figure out it out along the way. And there's already some early projects that are that are using carbon free energy. Those are in the forms of power purchase agreements. Microsoft, for example, has signed a PPA with the Swedish facility, or sorry, the Swedish utility, um, Vattenfall, which um, is going to be powering three of Microsoft's data centers in Sweden with carbon-free energy. Of course, Vattenfall enjoys a ton of hydro, and so that's not something that we're going to be able to scale as quickly in other places, but still starting to create those mechanisms. And Google and Microsoft have signed um, PPAs with AES, um, in Virginia in order to power their, their data centers there. But to your question of how this actually happens, 
there's a couple of different buckets of technology that we know are going to be part of the solution. One is software, and we need to have good traceability software. When we like turn on our lights in our house, we don't really know where that energy is coming from. And in order for this to work, we need to know that corporations and communities are actually using energy that is coming from a carbon-free source. So we need better better um, uh, temporal and location-based information to know that where our electricity is coming from. Another is um, carbon accounting software. And that can be demand response. That can be a, a facility that's automatically optimizing non-essential activities to a time when there's plentiful clean energy on the grid. Then there's sort of like the, the clean energy 101. We just need more clean energy generally on the grid. There's plenty of places where just Plain old-fashioned solar and wind will help decrease the emissions from that part of the grid. And we also need to be diversifying our clean energy resources. I just noted how that ball is, uh, is blessed with a lot of hydro. But hydro is a great source of firm energy generation that's clean, meaning that we can dispatch it at any time. Um, so technologies like geothermal can pair nicely, um, hydro, and then also nuclear. And yeah. then I'd also just note that it's important to be shifting loads for times when when renewables are plentiful on the grid. And then, of course, the holy grail, which is energy storage. In order to reach this, we're going to need to be able to store energy for when it's needed. And we're going to need long duration energy storage, seasonal energy storage and technology breakthroughs there in, around things perhaps like green hydrogen um, and pumped hydro can also can yeah. also play a role here. Green Biz Senior Editor Deanna Anderson wrote about the resale and re-commerce phenomenon projected to become a $77 billion marketplace over the next several years. Here's Deanna with some insights on what it will take to deliver. Yeah, so uh, for context, that $77 billion number is projected for 2024. Um, in 2021, that was at about $36 billion, so it needs to almost double in the next couple of years. Um, one of the things that I think it will take to get there is technology that kind of helps brands and retailers be able to track apparel. My piece really focused on the fashion industry. Um, so it needs to be able to track apparel through um, its entire life. And currently there are companies that are able to do this, but it's not as widespread as it could be. So really companies need to take the time to invest in this infrastructure that's needed to support these systems. And also in order to get there, which is something that I think about a lot, there's a lot of companies that do resell on a pilot kind of level. And I think that in order for it to really get to the level of 77 billion, it needs to make up, resale specifically needs to make up a larger portion of what they sell. So. One of the benefits of resale is that it can potentially offset the carbon that is created for making new items. But if you're still making the same amount of items that um, you're made in 2019 <laughs> and you want resale to actually be a good part of your um, sustainability process, you need to kind of limit um, how much more new stuff you're actually creating. The final segment I'd like to feature came in response to a question from a webcast audience member about the future of cellular agriculture, which has generated plenty of buzz and big investments over the past several weeks. The question was addressed by two green biz subject matter experts. First, we'll hear from Teresa Lieb, food systems analyst, 
followed by associate editor Jesse Klein. Yeah, yeah. So it definitely is on our radar. Some of our agriculture um, is basically you produce meat from cells that come from real animals and reproduce them in a lab or in a production facility. It's kind of like brewing beer, but you brew cells and they grow and then you have a real steak. It's not um, like an alternative to meat. It is meat, but it's just um, produced in a different way. And you don't need to grow the whole animal anymore. You just get directly to what people want to eat. Um, and so it's a fascinating technology and it's um, it reduces a lot of the emissions that are you know, usually part of growing meat um, like we have for thousands of years, but it uses a lot of um, electricity energy specifically. So that's like something where a lot of emissions still take place. But overall, it has from from the data that are available now, it has a much lower carbon footprint. So it's something that I'm personally interested in and, and think has promised. But um, for now, um, it's still really expensive. It's still kind of like early on in the R&D process um, and only Singapore, as far as I know, is the only country that has actually given regulatory approval um, for these products and says that they are food safe and there's a restaurant in Singapore where you can eat um, cell-grown chicken. Um, and in the US, there are several companies um, basically ready to go to market soon, but they're still waiting for regulatory approval. Um, and yeah, something on our radar, we had um, a cool session at Burge last year with a company in San Francisco. They make um, cell-grown salmon, and we went to taste some of that, and it was good. So, yeah, um, I'll, I'll let Jesse add anything to that. Yeah, I'm actually neck deep in a feature on, reporting a feature on this right now, and I've been talking to sort of the, the innovators and the entrepreneurs and the startups about who are in this world, Upside Foods, there's one, there's a, an investor group called Cult. And talking to them, you know, they're, they're really optimistic. They know that it's expensive right now. And they're hoping that, you know, more innovations will come. Something that they're, that they're really excited about is the use of the growth medium. They've been able to find a growth medium that doesn't use bovine. It's much cheaper and it's plant-based. It doesn't make sense to make meat in a way that doesn't kill animals if you still have to kill animals to get the growth medium. And they know it's expensive and they're hoping that as things scale up, um, the price will come down and they'll have closer to price parity. Then you talk to the fermentation scientists and the biotech side and they are not as optimistic at all. They don't think it's really biologically possible to grow at the scale that they that we need in order to feed billions of people. Um, they just don't think the, they think the biological limitations are what they are and that it's not going to happen. So there's a really interesting push pull happening between, you know, the startups and the, uh, the kind of the academia academics. Yeah. And I'd love to get them in a room to fight it out. <laughs> to listen to the full webcast, please visit greenbiz.com forward slash webcasts and look for the state of green business 2022. I'm Jesse Klein, Associate Editor at GreenBiz. When we think of farmers, we think of people growing food for our table. But the United States, that's actually an outdated idea. Most farmers in this country aren't actually growing food. 
Take Martin Larson, fifth-generation farmer in Minnesota, where he grows mostly crops for animal feed and biofuel. So it's been corn and soybeans uh, most of my life, and you know, a little bit of hay and a little bit of oats for the cattle. Corn and soy are tough plants for sustainability on farms. They leak nitrogen and ruin the soil and water quality. And during one hard season, Larson decided he needed to do something different. We couldn't plant. It got too late to, to economically plant corn anymore um, because it was so wet. Um, we actually had 17 inches of snow on May 5th that year in 2013. Um, so it changed my perspective on agriculture. And, you know, I started to um, think that we really needed to do something different or I needed to do something different on the farm. So I started no-tilling and cover cropping. And it still didn't feel like it was enough. And then I went through uh, crop year 2019. But what I did see in 2019 is 54 inches of rain at my farm. Um, and that's just the rain that wasn't the precip for the whole year, which included snow. So it's just a phenomenal amount of rain. And the kind of flooding that it caused and the damage that I again saw in the fields, even though it was no tilling. Um, and then I also saw, you know, this devastation of my crop yields because of, of how, you know, wet it was all summer long. So I, that's that was really my start into oats is like I need to diversify further. Larson linked up with Oatly, the dairy-free milk alternative, and their milling partner. Oatly started a pilot project in 2019 to help farmers introduce oats into their rotations of corn and soy crops. Oats are a great crop for the health of a farm. The roots are dense and fibrous, so they can catch the nitrogen applied to the soil, and it doesn't run off into the groundwater system and contaminate the water supply. But there's an intense economic pressure to grow corn and soy, high-value crops that are much more profitable than oats. The difficult part is getting outside of the comfort zone of corn and soybeans, but also like the crop insurance, the safety that we have with corn and soybeans because of the heavily subsidized crop insurance. Mm -hmm. makes it attractive to stay with corn and soybeans. The four-way partnership between the farmer, Oatly, Grain Millers, a miller in northern Iowa, and Practical Farmers of Iowa, a nonprofit that helps farmers, are helping farmers make a change. They're supplying funding, education, and purchase guarantees for farmers that decide to put oats into their rotations. Anytime you step out of what you've been doing as a farmer, we have this apprehension that really you get this one chance you don't get to like, oh, no, I screwed it up. Let's do a do-over on this year, on 2020. Let's, can we redo 2020 crop year? You know, you can't, you can't do that. As the farmers learns the ins and outs of growing oats, there's a chance that the first few oat crops might not be good enough for food grade and can't be purchased by Oatly. Oats have to be a certain weight to be considered food grade, or else they'll be downgraded to the feed level. Lydia English from Practical Farmers of Iowa told me she still has farmers calling her to try to sell their feed-grade oats from last season. So to support farmers, Oatly and the grain miller have promised to find a secondary market for the oats in the program that don't make the grade and that Oatly can't purchase. So it was a risk um, that I knew was in the back of my mind. And yes, it, it, there's a comfort level about I can't meet 36 to 38 pound oats that, that they'll help me out and find find a way out of this a lot of bushels right Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's part of the learning curve too is like well how do you grow good oats um 
when in in the past years we were having these experiences with oats that they were just light as fluff and they weren't they weren't good they weren't they were barely good enough for feed but as Larson has learned the ropes with the help of practical farmers of Iowa, he's gotten the weights of his oats up and expanded to growing about 150 acres of oats for Oatly's milk product. So it was important to me that I was growing food again and that was rewarding for me. It is rewarding for me, not just was. That's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. You'll learn more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our seven free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, your questions, your tips. You can find us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode was sponsored by SIBO Technologies, creator of SIBO Enterprise, which verifies, quantifies, and grows a company's ESG, carbon, and scope three impact tracking progress toward sustainability goals, and proving the benefit of regenerative ag programs. For more information, please visit SIBOTechnologies.com. <laughs>